Please be seated. Bible's in the back if you do not have one. We are in Hebrews chapter 8. Mm-hmm. All right, we're not going to skip chapter 7. How many picked that up? Oh, come on. <laughs> chapter 7 is where we are. We're halfway through the book. We do preach through books of the Bible, expository preaching, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're about halfway through this great book of exhortation written 2,000 years ago. But as we have been seeing week after week, it is applicable and really speaking to us today, this, this year, this, these past few months. So turn with me. Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And just let me, let me just tell you that verses 1 through 10, I was talking to uh, uh, the pastors here this week. Verses 1 through 10 is like you're flying on an airplane and you're above the clouds looking down on this, this, this figure of Melchizedek. Next week, we're kind of coming under the clouds. We haven't touched ground yet. And we're, 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 we're flying along, getting along a little bit more. And then on the third week, this is the way the chapter's draw, uh, drawn up, we're going to land the plane and really understand. So it's pretty heavy, head-heavy today. So put your thinking caps on, and we're kind of setting up of what this author and what God wants us to see about Melchizedek. We'll get some peaks about that, peaks for that today, but that's kind of where we're going. So Hebrews chapter 7, it may leave some questions for you. Hopefully we can, we can close uh, the gap here and answer some of the questions you might have about him. But hear the word of God, the infallible, inspired, authoritative word from God. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem. That is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descendants from Abraham. But this man who does not have descendant from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. Verse 10. For he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. Like, wow. Wow. You'll get it. That's my job, to make you get that, okay? This book, you know, has been teaching us that Jesus is better. That's the series title, Jesus is Better. Jesus Jesus is greater than anything that this world has to offer you. When life doesn't go your way, difficulties and, and hardships come, we have a tendency to return to the things that we know, that we experienced in the past, looking to things in pain, in loneliness, in confusion, in uncertainty, looking for things that will provide hope. Give us some hope, some joy, some assurance that everything is going to be okay. 
And that's the marketing strategy of America, right? You get this gadget, new car, new relationship, the things that you think you're longing for, and everything will be just okay. Well, it may be nice to have some gadgets, because I, I have them. I like them. And it may be satisfying to have relationships, good relationships, enjoy family, children, grandchildren now, spouses, good relationships, co-workers, relationships with co-workers and, and schoolmates, but not without Jesus, who is the final satisfaction, the eternal hope, the never-ceasing fountain of joy, who provides for us the only way of salvation and the full and assurance of our salvation. This congregation of, that this letter has been written to was, you remember, a congregation under severe persecution and most likely under severe pressure from the Jewish people to return to the old ways. Forget this Jesus thing and return to the ways of your ancestries. Go back to the old rituals, the ceremonies, the practices of the Old Testament to find their hope and their confidence and their salvation. That's what this letter was written to, the people written to. We may not feel this pull to go back to Judaism. Maybe some of you do. I don't. But there are plenty of things, there are plenty of things that pull us away from our devotion, our singular devotion to Christ. Right? So I don't, the first question we need to answer is, what is it in the culture, what is it in the past that you are driven to or, or drawn to when things get hard and difficulty rather than relying upon the hope of Christ? And that's why, that's why this Whatever we run to, by the way, it's just an illusion. Even, if, even if, it's, if it satisfies for a season, it'll never satisfy eternally. Only Jesus does. And that's why the author, as we've been saying, he's been meticulously instructing us about what? The supremacy, the superiority, and the sufficiency of Christ. And he's exhorting them to remain faithful in the midst of the persecution. And so far we have been seeing in this letter that Christ is superior. He is better than the angels. He is better and superior to Moses, to Joshua, and the, all the Old Testament priests in the Old Testament. In fact, when we were in chapter 5, the author made it clear that he is greater high priest, partly because Jesus' high priestly appointment comes after a man called Melchizedek. The author in chapter 5, verse 6, if you have your Bibles, you could turn there. The author in chapter 5 and 6 quotes the Psalms, Psalm 110, verse 4, it simply says that because Jesus is the Son of God, he's a priest after the order, after the calling, after the appointment of a man called Melchizedek. Chapter 5, verse 6. In chapter 5, verse 10 of Hebrews, he says it again, being designated, being called by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's in chapter 5. But if you remember, in chapter 5, verse 11, he stops. He stops teaching about Melchizedek. He mentions him, but he stops because he says, listen, you guys are, are dull. Chapter 5, verse 11. About this, about Melchizedek, we have a lot to say, but it's hard to, it's hard to explain to you because you become dull of hearing. You become immature. You haven't grown. You're drinking milk. You should be eating meat. So I'm going to stop what I'm saying about Melchizedek, and I want to encourage you to press on. That's what he does in, in chapter, end of chapter 5 into chapter 6. Press on to maturity. And then he gives us a warning, if you remember. He gives us a warning uh, that you don't fall away. And he's talking about people who profess to believe in Christ but don't possess Christ. He's talking to fake believers. And he tells them, listen, there could be a falling away. Get right. You can fall away from the living God. And from chapter 6, you'll find that warning in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, uh, excuse me, 1 through 6, 
7 and 8, really. From this warning, he launches into, which is, I think is just glorious, into giving us the assurance, those who truly profess Christ, those who truly possess Christ, he gives us the assurance of our salvation. We've been looking at it for two weeks. Pastor Ricky did a great job last week. And chapter 6, verses 9 through the end of the chapter, he wants to make it clear. If you know Christ and been genuinely born of his spirit, you are eternally secure and you can have hope. Chapter 6, verse 19, he writes this, We have this, it's the promise of God, the oath of God, backed by the unchangeable character of God. We have this, verse 19, as a sure, steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that, look, enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Right? So our hope isn't just hope. Our hope is in a person. He went behind the curtain and he's bringing in, notice this family, he's bringing in this idea of priestly rule again. Behind the inner place, behind the curtain. He's talking about the temple. Chapter 6, verse 20. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of of Melchizedek. You see what he did? He ends in chapter 5, verse 10. He gives warnings, admonitions, assurances, and then he comes back and he drops in at the end of chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, this idea of Melchizedek. He's like, I'm back. <laughs> I'm back. I didn't forget about him. I know I tell you all dull from here and you need to mature, but now I'm back and I want to talk about what I left off and I want to talk to you about this priestly role this idea of this man who's in the Old Testament called Melchizedek. That, and that's where we're going. So we're going to look at three things. Number one, who is he? His personhood. Number two, what happened? He talks about a story with Abraham. You've got to understand the story if you want to know who, who Melchizedek is. And then thirdly, why does it matter? What's the difference? What does it matter? We'll look at the, uh, his patterns, okay? So that's where we're going. Now, if you have your Bibles open, if you look at chapter 7, he brings in Melchizedek again, end of chapter 6, beginning of chapter 7, and you put the verse, the first part of verse 1, verse 1a, and 2b together, which I did for you on the screen, it gives you an idea who he's talking about, okay? For this Melchizedek is king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, 2b, he is first, by translation of his name, the king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Now, again, context is important. What the author has been saying in chapters 4 and 5 when he introduces Jesus as this greater and better high priest, he talks about Jesus being better and greater than Aaron, who is who? The first high priest, right? And in chapter 4 and chapter 5, before he kind of, goes off in six, five and six, end of five and six. Uh, he says that Jesus is a supreme and sufficient greater high priest than all the Old Testament priests because, and I'll give you just a summary quickly, because number one, he says in chapters five and six, Jesus better than high priest because he's one, entered a man, he did not enter a man-made temple, but Jesus entered into heaven himself, not like the Old Testament priest. He is also fully human and can sympathize with our weaknesses and temptation, yet, unlike the old priest of the Old Testament, he's without sin. It says he was called and appointed by God himself, and that Jesus acted on behalf of men who offered up himself as a sacrifice. It says that Jesus cried out to God in prayer and he was heard 
when he prayed and cried out because he earned it as the perfect spotless lamb of God. And it says in chapters 5, 4, and 5 about Jesus' priestly role is that he is what? He is our only source of real, true, lasting salvation. Now, if you remember from that couple of weeks ago, Israel had 12 tribes. One out of the 12 tribes, God called to himself and says, you, this one tribe, will serve me as priests. Remember the tribe? Levi, right? The third son of Leah and Jacob, Levi's the tribe which Moses comes from, which Aaron comes from. That's why the Levites are called the Levitical priesthood, okay? And just by way of reminder, remember the Levitical priesthoods, beginning with Aaron, who's actually the older brother of Moses, took, bore the responsibilities to offer sacrifices required by the Mosaic law. They would be ministers. They would be intercessors in the temple offering sacrifices for atonement and other sacrifices uh, for, for sins of the people. They, they cared for the religious articles that, that God said to get and bring into the temple. And they, 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 were, you know, they did the worship activities within the temple. And they were instructing the people on what sacrifice to bring and what things of the Mosaic law. I mean, there was a very, very important role that God said, you Levites will do for me at the, the temple. In fact, the Old Testament tells us that when God set up this Levitical priesthood, he said, you come to me and you sacrifice and you minister before me for the people and I will meet you in this temple there through this mediation. Very important you understand that. And this happened, and we know, through the Mosaic Law. You can read you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all, all the five books of the Torah. You'll see it in there. All this took place, what he's talking about here with Melchizedek meeting Abraham, all this took place before the law was given. And what you need to see in this text, in chapter 1, 1a, is that Melchizedek... Before the Levitical priesthood, all that, all, all that went on afterward. This is in Genesis 14. He's the king of Salem and the priest. Now you may think, so what? Priest and kings were separate roles throughout the entire Old Testament. Kings didn't act like priests and priests didn't act like kings. It was unlawful for them to do each other's role in the Old Testament. Okay? Sort of like the judicial branches of today. There are certain things that they didn't do. We studied First and Second Samuel together. If you remember, First Samuel 13, the king, Saul, did what? Unlawful sacrifices. He's supposed to wait for Samuel the priest and didn't do it. Chapter 13. And God was not happy. In fact, that was the incident where God cemented the reality that Saul's dynasty is over. Kings don't offer sacrifices and priests don't act like kings. Okay, that's, that's clear here. But here... Melchizedek, in Genesis 14, is king and priest. And not only is he both roles, both offices, but he does a great job in both of them. The word Melchizedek means, it comes from a Hebrew word, melech meaning king, zedek, which means righteousness. His name is often, many times in the Old Testament, speaks and stresses about his character. King of righteousness. He, he's, he's the king of Salem, Salem, S-L-M, consonant, it means peace is where we get shalom. He is, the, he is the king of peace, king of Salem, king of peace. And, and we know both from, the, from his name, from rabbinic commentary, from Psalm 76, Salem, peace, is the place of Jeru 
Salem. Shalom, peace. Such a name speaks volumes about this man. If you look in Genesis 14, which you will in a minute, you'll know that this king of priests, this king of righteousness, lived among the people called the Canaanites. The, the Canaanites were, were, were idolaters. He also lived near a place called Sodom. The immoral and shameful worship and exercising this kingly role with righteousness and peace in the Canaanite in, uh, area and among the Sodomites who were ungodless. King of righteousness, ruled in the city of peace. Means a lot. Look at verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Well, what does that mean? Some commentators think that he's, a, uh, some commentators think he actually Shem, which was Noah's son, uh, or maybe the son of Shem, um, ancestries of Abraham. They lived five, six hundred years back then. I'm glad we don't anymore, personally. Some say he was this angelic or celestial being with this, with this you know, uh, beginning of days, no mother, no father. Some people, some commentaries, if you read, will say that he's actually the pre-incarnate Christ, which is called a Christophany, which means Jesus shows up in the Old Testament, and therefore, that's why it says beginning of days or uh, has no beginning, no end, no mother and father. He, this must be Jesus. Well, it, it can't be none of those things. If it was Jesus, it wouldn't say that Jesus is from the order of Melchizedek. If he is Melchizedek, it wouldn't say that. Also, look at the text. It says resembling. The word resemble means to be like. Not the same thing. To be like or the same person. To be similar to the Son of God. So if he was the Son of God, it wouldn't say he was similar to him. So it's not, it's not Jesus incarnate. So who is this Melchizedek? And why is this resemblance... Just breathtaking. Well, let me give you the key. We're talking about the priesthood that came from Levi. We're talking about a priesthood that not only came from Levi, but in the Old Testament they had very strict, very strict lineage understanding or records of lineage in the Old Testament. If you were a Levitical priest, you better have record of that or you are not getting into the temple, right? And this goes all the way back to Aaron. You had to prove that you came from the Levite tribe if you were going to enter into any kind of priestly role. In Ezra and in Nehemiah, when the exiles were coming back from exile, um, they came back to Jerusalem, and a couple of the guys came and said, hey, we're, we're from the Levitical priesthood. You can find this in uh, Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7. And they said, hey, that's great. Let me see your credentials. They're like, all right, I'll be right back. They go home, they look around, they can't find it. Sounds like me, can't find nothing. They go back and look, we can't find it, but we really are. They're like, that sounds great, you're not getting in. No. Like, well, we really, we can't, my father was this, it doesn't matter. Unless you have strict record, you're not getting in. But Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God by divine ordination, not by Levitical genealogy he's without father or mother without genealogy that's stressing the point that he didn't come from that tribe okay familiar ancestry was very important and because Melchizedek we'll look at this in a minute in Genesis 14 shows up on the scene out of nowhere I mean he comes out of nowhere two verses in the Old Testament and then he departs out of nowhere he's gone 
We have no idea whose mom is, his dad. We have no idea the day he was born, the day he died, neither the beginning of days, nor the end of life. What the author is stressing is that this divine call upon his life, the reality of he just shows up without all this information, that his priesthood then looks like and it points to that, it li- that he lives forever. That's the understanding. He's not part of that tribe. New Testament scholar William Lane says this, Melchizedek's sudden appearance and equally sudden disappearance from record, from recorded history, awakens with a sensitive reader, within a sensitive reader, the notion of eternity. That's why he says in verse 3, He is without father or mother or genealogy, neither beginning of days nor the end of life, but what? Resembles the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. This mysterious biblical record regarding Melchizedek days implies this continuation. That's what he's pointing to. No record of beginning, no record of end. He remains a priest forever, resembling, similar to the Son of God. Notice, notice your text. It doesn't say Jesus resembles Melchizedek. It says that Melchizedek resembled Jesus. Only one that's eternal. And notice also the stressing of Jesus' personhood. He's the Son of God, he says, resembling the Son of God. Now, he's the Son of Man as well. He's fully human, and I don't think he's saying that he's not, but the point he's making is the eternality of Christ. Very important person, king of peace, king of righteousness, priest bringing together two roles, two offices together that you don't see anywhere. Number two, what happened? Look, look at the verse um, here with me. The author's trying to show us something, okay? Now, catch this, okay? I told you, you got to put your thinking caps on. Before the author shows us how and why Jesus is a better and greater high priest, he first has to show us that Melchizedek, of which the order of Jesus is after, that Melchizedek is better and greater and preeminent to Abraham and to Aaron and to all the other priesthood. You understand that? He's building on this. He doesn't just say Jesus is better than Abraham. He's got to establish Melchizedek's preeminence over the order of the Old Testament priests, over Abraham, before he brings Jesus in. I hope you got that. I think I was pretty clear. He's building a case. Look again at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. Okay? What's that? Genesis 14. Let me, let me, let me just give you, a, just put some context in this. Genesis 14 is where you'll find that. Now, if you remember, Abraham, who was, used, was called Abram, if you know, great patriarch of the Jewish people. In chapter 12, Abram was called out by God, leave the Urs of Chaldean and come to Canaan. God says, come out of your family's pagan life and religion and come to where I will show you. Chapter 12. And what does God tell him? Starts that covenantal relationship. He says, I will make you, Abraham, God telling Abraham, chapter 12, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you, Abraham, and make your name great so that you will what? Bless everybody else. The whole world will be blessed through you. Points to Jesus. The whole world. You got this blessing. I'm blessing you. Come out from there and I'm going to bless you. Chapter 12. Chapter 13, we find Abram, Abraham and Lot on their way to Canaan. And Abraham and Lot 
go their separate ways if you know the story. Abraham goes where he's supposed to go, to Canaan, and where does Lot go? He pitched his tent in Sodom. His nephew, Lot, goes to Sodom. Chapter 13. Follow me? Chapter 14, there's a war. Well, Abram is in Canaanite, in Canaan, and Lot is in Sodom. Five kings from the southern part of that region start having to pay, let's say, punk dues to four kings of the north. The four kings of the north say to these five kings of the south, listen, give me some money. If you want protection, pay me. And you all think it was Italians. It wasn't. (laughs) Pay me. You pay me and we'll make sure you five kings of the south will be safe. And they did for 13 years. In the 14th year, the five kings of the south said, you know, we ain't paying no more. You know what happens then, right? They send the goom squad. Oh, you're not paying? They, they told us not paying anymore. Oh, okay. So the four kings of the north come down to the south collecting their money. They whoop up on them. Beat up all five kings. Take people, kill people, take plunder, spoils, goods. And they're like, yeah, that'll teach them. And they go, we're done. And they start heading north. And guess who they take with them? Lot. Lot's in captive now. He's one of the part of the, the kings on the bottom. He's in Sodom. He's a southern, southern, one of the southern five kings. He's in, 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 in Sodom. So Lot's, Lot's a captive. Lot's on his way north as a, as a, as a slave. Someone says to Abraham, listen, just so you know, there was a war over here, and they got your nephew. And he did what any good uncle would do. He gathers his men together and said, we ain't, we're, I'm not having this. And he chases them. And Abraham and his men do a whooping on those four kings. And they take Lot back. And on his way back, Abraham with his nephew, who do they run into? King of Sodom? And Melchizedek. Now, King of Sodom just had a whooping up on him. And in chapter 14, verse 21, it says this, that the king of Sodom came out to meet Abraham, said to Abraham, now this guy just won a war, got all his people back that were alive, all his plunder, and he says to Abram, king of Sodom says to Abram, give me my persons. Give me the people that belong to me. Keep the spoils, but give me the people, right? No humility. No thank you, no gratitude, no meekness, just demands, right? And you think entitlement started yesterday, it didn't either. Abraham wasn't biting opportunity, he wasn't biting at it, he didn't want his stuff. Abraham turns to the king of Sodom, this wicked king, and says, listen, I have lifted my hands to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thing from you, not a thread, nor a sandal, nor a strap, or anything that is yours, Lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten. Can't get that back. And share of the men who went with me. I'm keeping mine. Right? So although I can keep everything because you just got whooped up on and I got all your stuff back, I'm going to give it all back to you because you know what? No one's going to say, you, wicked king of Sodom, made me rich. It's not going to happen. In contrast to the king of Sodom, we read in Genesis 14 as well. The two verses in all the Torah, the five books of the law, we read this. And when Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
went out to meet Abraham. He brought bread and wine. He was priest of God most high and he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abraham and he said, blessed be Abram by God most high possessor of heaven and earth and blessed by God the most high who has delivered you, your enemies from your hand. And Abraham then gives him a tenth of everything he had. See what's happening? Here's this great priest king of Jerusalem, a man of faith, blessing Abraham. And up to this point in Genesis, the only one that got blessed was Abraham. God did all the blessing. And you have this contrast with this this king of Sodom who comes out with nothing and demands stuff back. And you have this king of righteousness comes out with his hands full. Bread and wine, staple food of the day. Guys were hungry. They just finished fighting a war. Also know this, in the ancient world, paying tithes to another one was a recognition of the other person's superiority, a sign of subjection to that person. The context is clear. The context is clear. Abraham has just returned from the slaughter. He was the man. He was the winner. He had just returned everything. I mean, he, he won. He was on top. He established himself as a courageous man with significant ability. And let's not also forget, throw this in here, that Abraham was the great patriarch. Jews for generations would point to him as the friend of God, as Scripture says. The greatest of men, the main patriarch of the Jewish people. But when he meets Melchizedek, he recognized his superiority, his greatness, and paid him a tithe, a tenth of the plunder. This was a deliberate action of Abraham. That he was in the presence of someone better, someone greater than himself, a surpassing superiority. So when you go back to Hebrews 2, and it says, And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. Verse 4, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoil. That's Melchizedek. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, through these also are descendants from Abraham. So what he's saying is, when God established the 12 tribes, he gave 11 of the tribes property. He did not give the Levites property. What he said was, the Levites, remember, all the, all the priests were, had to be Levites, but not every Levite was a priest, right? So all the priests came from the Levitical line, but not all the Levites were priests. Okay, so what he did, God did, says, look, you all 11 have property and land, but the Levites will serve in my temple, in my place in Jerusalem, in, in the place where I send them, and all the 11 brothers, family, other tribes, will pay a tenth to the Levites to help them with their families, a piece of land near the temple, they had a place to eat, you know, they would, they would support the ministry of the temple, sort of like today, and you, you give the size of the offerings, not only to support the church, the local and globally, and his tenth was for the Levitical family. Okay, does that make sense? So the Levites and the priests were assigned by God to receive this tithe. Even though the Levites were Jewish people that came from the ancestry of Abraham. Okay, following me? So, verse 6. But this man, who does not have his descendant, Melchizedek, from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. His point is that the Levite's ability was to collect according to the law, but Melchizedek doesn't come from Levi's. Okay, you following that? And that's really important. Look at verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. 
building a case for Melchizedek. In biblical, in biblical blessings, the superior always blessed the inferior. Just as Abraham knew he would present the tithe to Melchizedek, he also knew he must bow and receive this blessing of prayer upon him. He gives tithes to Melchizedek, and he received this blessing. God had just told Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and your blessing is going to bless the entire world. And now, God did that to Abraham, and now Melchizedek is blessing Abraham, and he bows and he receives it. I mean, Abraham was the supreme blesser. All of mankind was the ones blessed, and now he sees himself as inferior to Melchizedek, who rises above him with this mysterious greatness and receives this blessing. The conclusion here he's drawing attention to is Melchizedek's priesthood, although it is only mentioned briefly here, is superior in every way. Melchizedek's priesthood is superior in every way to the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. That's the point. Verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. The Levites received tithes and offering from their brothers, but they were mortal men. They're going to die. Right? But in the other case, according to Melchizedek, by one of whom it testifies that he lives. In other words, he has no beginning and no end. That's, that's the point. Some will die, and yet this order of Melchizedek is a priest forever. And the author at this point is thinking, and this is a great job, because you, whenever, you, whenever you teach, you're thinking, what are they thinking? What, what's, the re, what's the response going to be? What, what could they possibly say to all this? Somebody might say, oh, that's great. I'm glad, I'm glad Melchizedek received the tithe. Melchizedek received the tithe. But you know what? The Levites received tithes too. So I don't see him any better. He gets tithe. The Levitical priests get better, uh, get tithes as well. So what's the difference? Look at the next verse. One might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes, himself paid tithes through Abraham. How does that happen? For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. See the argument? The priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the Levitical priesthood because the unborn Levites participate in giving the tithe to Melchizedek by Abraham because they were in the loins of Abraham. They would come later on. Paul uses the same line of reasoning. If you go like, well, I don't understand all that. You know what? Paul says in Romans and in 1 Corinthians of the solidarity of the human race. Adam sinned, therefore all have sinned, all have died, and death happens to all of us because of Adam's sin. Right? That's, that's in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 5. Both seminally and representatively, we call it the federal headship, The person is represented by someone else. And Levi was present in the person of his great-grandfather on the occasion that Abraham gave a tithe and spoils to Melchizedek. It says that Levi was also giving that tithe and that portion. And you may say, well, I I I don't see how that is, how is that really fair? If Adam sinned, and I'm born with sin, I'm born guilty, I have a sin nature and I am sin uh, uh, by, by nature and by choice, how is that fair? I wasn't there. Well, every single time you come up here and take communion, you're doing the same thing. Right? I wasn't righteous. I can't die for my sin, but because of what Jesus did for me, 
as my head, as my representative, I'm forgiven of my sin. Praise God for headship. Praise God for, for his work on the cross given to me. I'll take that. But I don't want Adam. They come together. They go together. They go together. So how is that the priestly line of Aaron and his descendants are said to be subordinate and inferior to Melchizedek? Aaron was in Abraham's loins when he gave tithes to Melchizedek. Therefore, not only, this is what the author, is, we're going to move on in a minute. Not only is the author saying that Abraham, Aaron, all the lineage priests of the Old Testament and Melchizedek, Melchizedek, There's no one greater than them, is what I'm trying to say, but Jesus, right? So Melchizedek is greater than Aaron. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Melchizedek is greater than all the priests of the Old Testament. He's supreme and preeminent over all of those. Abraham, Aaron, all the priests. Melchizedek is supreme over them. That's the point, because now he wants to make a point that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. And therefore, Jesus is greater than Aaron. Jesus is greater than Old Testament priest. Jesus is greater than Abraham. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Look what it says. Why does this matter? And that's the point, right? You could say at this point, you could say, all right, I see this. I, I see this history. I see what's going on. Um, maybe I should give tithes. Maybe I should be careful who I hang out with. You, can, you could draw all these conclusions. You miss the point. You missed the point. The whole point is Melchizedek comes and goes from the scene. He leaves. He's there for, for, for two verses in Genesis 14. For a thousand years, you don't hear of him. You know when you hear of him again? The psalmist of Israel, King David. Psalm 110. I mentioned it earlier. Psalm 110 says this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, Yahweh, has spoken to Adonai, king. Sit at my right hand. And we know that that psalm points to Jesus. He is the ultimate king. Where all the enemies and everything that opposes him will be crushed. We see it partially now, but someday Jesus will come as the reigning king, bringing in his kingdom. That's what David is saying. There is someone greater than me, even though I'm, I'm in Jerusalem now, I'm having, when he wrote this psalm, things are going well, there's a greater king to come. That's what he says in Psalm 110, verse 1. In Psalm 110, 110 verse 4, he says this, The Lord has sworn and not changed his mind, you are a priest forever. After who? The order of Melchizedek. You see what David's doing in Psalm 110? He's saying, he's declaring there's a king who will come, who is greater than me, who will reign forever in righteousness. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until everything is under your footstool. And there's a priest who will come under the order of Melchizedek and he'll be greater than Melchizedek. David is pointing to, David is pointing to and a foreshadow of who Christ will be, and also Melchizedek is a shadow, is a, is a prefigure, we call a type of Christ in the Old Testament, which means he's pointing to something. The late Donald K. Campbell from DTS, Dallas Seminary, said this, a type or a pattern or a prefigure is an Old Testament institution, event, person, object, or ceremony, which has a reality and purpose in biblical history, but which also by divine Design foreshadows something yet to come. 
a type, says Dr. Kruger, is a reference to an Old Testament person, historical event, ceremony that foreshadows what Christ would do. You see what David is doing? Do you see what, what Melchizedek is? They're all foreshadows. They're all patterns. They're all prefigures of something yet to come. Let me illustrate. Numbers 21. The Old Testament. They're wandering in the desert. They're growling and moaning and crying. And they're just rebellious a bunch of people. God has enough. And God says, all right, you know what? I think I know what I'll do. I'll get their attention. And he sends in fiery serpents to bite them. And they die from the poison. They get, he gets their attention. And they're like, Moses, we're dying out here. Do something, do something. And Moses says, all right, I'll call out to the Lord and see what we can do. Moses prays to God and God says, all right, I'll tell you what. Go get a golden snake, put it on a pole, hold it up, and everybody who looks to that pole will be healed. Say, so what is that all about? Well, we know. John 3, 14, Jesus says this, as Moses was lifted up, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, pointing, a foreshadow, a type of Christ. The Passover in the Old Testament is another well-known type. You got these lambs who, who are being slaughtered in the day of Passover so that, so that Israel can live. The firstborn won't die when the angel of death comes over. And this Passover lamb is slaughtered. The blood is shed in the Old Testament. What does the New Testament say? John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, what? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul just simply says, Jesus, our Passover lamb. You see the type? You see the foreshadow? So types are the foreshadows in the Old Testament. Christ is the antitype or the fulfillment of that type. In the Gospel of John, we studied together. Just simply in the Gospel of John, listen to this. Chapter 1, Jesus is the true and better Passover, the Lamb of God. Chapter 2, Jesus is the good and better temple where the fullness of God dwells. Chapter 3, Jesus is the better Moses who lift up the snake. Chapter 4, Jesus is the true and better place of worship. Chapter 5, Jesus is the true and better Sabbath rest. Chapter 6, Jesus is the true and better Moses, for he is the manna that came down from heaven. You know the story. Chapter 7, he is the water miraculously provided by the rock, by the pouring out of his spirit. Chapter 8, he is the true and better light of the world. You see? The true and better light of the world, he was talking about a ceremony that was going on with lighting of candles. I'm the light of the world. The ceremony that you all are doing points to me. That's what types is. And now we see here this author of Hebrew is showing the, the preeminence of Melchizedek only to show us that he is a foreshadow. He is a pattern. He is a type of the one to come. His name is Jesus, the Christ. He's in the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, Christ's priesthood is greater than the Old Testament Levitical priesthood because Melchizedek was greater than them. While Jesus' bloodline traced, was not traced through the tribe of Judah, which was, was traced through the tribe of Judah, not Levi. He had nothing lineage connected with Levi. He's greater because he is under the order of Melchizedek. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Aaron. He is greater than Melchizedek. His priesthood is, call, is by the call of God. He was both the true priest, the true prophet, the true king. And listen, although Melchizedek was a king of righteousness and a king of peace, he could never make you and I righteous or give us eternal peace. He's the only the type. Jesus is the antitype. Jesus is the better and the greater than the true Melchizedek who gives us his righteousness. 
First, by being righteous himself, he he lived that perfect life. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He innately righteous. He's innately righteous. He embodied righteous. He's the total righteousness. He has never sinned. And because of Jesus' righteousness, he now can impute righteousness to those who have faith in him. That's what Paul says, that a righteousness of God is perfect obedience. Apart from the law has come to which the law and the prophets testify, this righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. He lived the law perfectly. We did not. That's his point. And now we can have his righteousness. He's the true and better peace, uh, king of peace, the shalom of God, who offers peace to to the sinners like you and I to have peace with God, to be reconciled to God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the true and better king of Salem. Isaiah calls him the prince of peace. Jesus said, by peace I leave you, my peace I give you. He's the ultimate priest of the most high God, exalted in heaven, king of kings, lord of lords, one mediator, one salvation. That's what Melchizedek is pointing to. He's our better and greater Melchizedek. He's the king of righteousness. He cleanses us with his blood, washes us from our sins, lays on us the royal robes of his perfect obedience. That's why his is the city of peace. That's why he is the called the righteous one. Do you see? All the Old Testament religious ceremonies, particularly the, the priestly systems, which show us how wicked and sinful we really are and how holy and just God is and how much we need a mediator. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. He's our eternal king. And apart from him, listen, we have no righteousness. Now, let me wrap it up this way. Remember the context. The concern for the Hebrew Christians who were under persecution were tempted for, say, Christ, to, to turn back away from Christ in favor of Judaism, ritualism. So we can, we can end where we begin. Many people, and maybe you're here this morning, desperately seek to find hope, joy, full assurance, everything is okay through ambition, through materialism, through relationship, through entertainment, but you need to know that Jesus is your final satisfaction. He's the only eternal hope. He's the never-ceasing fountain of joy, and he's the only one that can give you the full assurance of your salvation. To the Jewish people in that day, that was Water to a a, a thirsty soul. And it should be here for us as the same this morning. He's the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. He is the only one. Melchizedek is pointing to him. Do you know him that way? Have you clothed yourself with his righteousness? Do you have peace with God? Not the peace of God. That's different. The peace with God because of your sin. You're a hostile and an enemy of God. Have you trusted in Christ? lived that perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, can clothe you, impute his righteousness to your account so that you can be justified, forgiven of sin, given his righteousness, and made right with God. That's our king. That's who Melchizedek is pointing to. So as we worship him, bow your knee to the king of righteousness, the man of eternal peace, who can give you peace with God and then can give you the peace of God. Father, thank you. Dropping this man in history thousands of years ago has taught us so much. You are so good to us to give us your word. You're so good to us to give us this story. 
You're so good to us to give us, most importantly, your son. There's been types and foreshadowed throughout the entire Old Testament and coming to full bloom and full fulfillment now in the new. And we get to live to see the truth of those foreshadows that are in Christ. Help us to worship him in spirit and truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.